Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. The art of negotiation is a skill everyone needs from time to time. My next guest is Amanda Lang, the Chief Commercial and Content Officer for Foxtel. I first encountered Amanda as General Counsel at ACP Magazines, and I later worked for her during her time as Managing Director of Nine. In this episode, I explore Amanda's reputation as a ruthless negotiator. Well, maybe not ruthless, just highly effective. It's a well-deserved reputation built partially on her efforts to secure eye-watering deals involving major sporting events. Think deals which are in the hundreds of millions, high stakes for everyone, often conducted on different time zones and without sleep. Amanda Lang, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Good to see you. I want to start by talking about your individual leadership style. You've held really big jobs from a pretty early age in your career. So I'm wondering, have you ever spent a lot of time thinking about what sort of leader you are? Not a lot of time, no. And that probably speaks to the fact that for most, certainly the early years of my career, I think my leadership style was very instinctive. I didn't do an MBA. I didn't have formal leadership training. And so it was quite instinctive. And there's still a lot of instinct in my leadership style. And that's as much as anything about the team that I and how I develop people. So that's still quite instinctive. But I think that as you become more senior and the business that you're involved in becomes more complex, you can't survive just on on instinct. So I have become much more sort of data-driven, process-driven, really being a bit more deliberate about the way I lead the team and develop my people. And much more of, I, 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 I always want to do everything at once. I'm pathologically optimistic. I'm very inclusive. I'm very collaborative. And so I've had to learn to be more disciplined about, I suppose, what my father would have referred to as measuring twice, cutting once. So being putting a bit more effort at the start of a process in any anything that you're doing to just be planning out things and being a bit more deliberate and then making sure that everyone's got the right task and knows what's expected of them. So you're making room for people to really shine. And that also comes from when you start out, there's just you, and, you know, and you're sort of doing everything. And then as you become more senior, it's like you build a team. So you need to make room for them to, to develop and, and find what they're good at and ask questions and that sort of thing. So I think the instinctiveness and, and collaborative part of it hasn't changed, but I've probably just become more deliberate, more disciplined. And I guess also there's just better processes and more data around that helps helps lead you in your leadership style of, of how you work with a team. Yeah, I think one of the things that I do as well is is that go too fast and think that everyone's, you know, working at the same speed. There's enormous satisfaction, though, from just slowing down 
mm. and taking stock and uh, watching others add to the ideas or the delivery. But I'm interested to know whether you've ever taken time out to work on your leadership style. So have you gone and got a coach or um, done any reading or have you just continued to develop it as you've made mistakes and adjusted? Well, certainly making mistakes and adjusting is, is very much part of the, 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 the school of hard knocks. Uh, but I actually, yeah, I have, I have. But it wasn't until probably a little later in my career than it perhaps could have been or should have been that there was a focus for me on development. And part of that is, you know, you're young, you're starting out, you know, you're going like a, uh, a bull at a gate. Uh, and then you realise that to make a difference and to make a step or to make a change, you need to learn some new skills. And sometimes that's because suddenly you've got people that you need to manage or that's because you take on a role where you are pushed beyond the things that you're naturally good at and you naturally enjoy. You need to find ways to deal with that or because suddenly you have a bunch of new colleagues or peers that are a trickier bunch and you need to navigate different situations. So I've had a coach for the last couple of years and that has made a world of difference, as much as anything, to my enjoyment of my role, actually, because you just have got some more tools in the toolkit. Uh, and that means you, you're you able to move through things more quickly and navigate them with a bit more expertise and a bit more of a deft hand. And actually, when I, a few, probably five, six years ago now, I went and did a short sort of residential course at Stanford. And that was a really important moment in my career. I just left Nine Channel Nine, where I'd, I'd been with that group for eighteen years, starting at in the magazine company, sort of many, many, many years before that, and been in a few different roles through lots of different, from private ownership to listing on the stock exchange and everything in between. And so it was just time to go to a completely different environment, be away from family, be away from friends, and be in this residential campus with other people. It was sort of a course where most people there had been about twenty years in the game. So they weren't sort of kids straight out of uni. It was people who'd been working, who, you know, who were well into their career, many of them about to make a change. And as you would well know, Helen, there is no one more obsessed with the Australian media than the Australian media. <laughs> so it was actually great to get out of all of that, go somewhere where there's someone who is the woman who was the head of Coca-Cola Amatil in China, a guy who's shipping cars out of Korea, people from startups in Silicon Valley, the woman who was running marketing for Lululemon. So really different people from different countries and different industries coming together. And so that, that was a really great learning experience. And again, just gives, gives you a few more sort of crayons to play with and things to draw on. And maybe there's three things that you take from the 3,000 things that you learnt in those six or eight weeks, whatever it was. But those three things, you'll come back to them again and again and again, and they'll help you. And I really try with my team get them coaching, give them development opportunities, take all those learning opportunities, say yes when someone's offering you an opportunity like that. Yeah, I think it's super valuable information because quite often you do think it's just a skill you've got, mm. but actually it's something that you do need to work on, particularly as you become more senior. Mm. What would you say your strengths are? Now, I ask that deliberately because... I want to talk about your reputation as a deal maker or a negotiator. So tell me from your perspective what you see your strengths are in an, in a negotiating process. Hmm. It's always hard to say, isn't it, of yourself? Look, I think that particularly in negotiation and deal making, you have to have stamina. 
and, and a bit of doggedness, dare I say, you have to have that stamina because I think ultimately you can be doing something for weeks, sometimes months, but that final three or four or five days when you just shut the door and make sure that you get the deal done, you've got to have stamina there and you've got to have a bit of doggedness there. But yeah, and you need to have done your homework. But I think part of that doing that homework is working out what the other side's going to value because sometimes the thing that they really value doesn't actually cost you much, but you know they really value it. So that's not about being tricky. That's just about understanding ways to build value for both of you. Because at the end of the day, when you shake hands, which is ultimately for me, that's the test. And yes, there'll be paperwork and lots of things, but you've got to, when you get to that point where you shake hands, you have to have kind of built value for both of you. You have to have found a way to find value. And sometimes that's the, the trickiest and most important part of the negotiation, which is if you come in with, well, I want this and this is what I need, you're not necessarily going to find a way forward. You have to find ways to move the value between you, which might come in unexpected ways. So you have to be flexible and you have to find ways to find value. So I think that's the, that's the hard work and the diligence. They're kind of strengths. And I know that's not a very fashionable way of thinking about it, but they are. Curiosity is really important. I think integrity is absolutely critical. And so when I think about the strengths that have been some of the pillars of where and why I've succeeded in different roles through my career, I'd say they are some of those foundations. Like I don't think there's any substitute for diligence and and hard work. I think uh, integrity is critical because every time you deal with someone or you, you, you you, you close a big deal or you work on something, there's got to be an element of trust there. And if that element of trust is not there, I just don't think you can see succeed. Or maybe you can succeed for a period, but I think ultimately if you don't conduct yourself with integrity, you come unstuck, especially in a market as small as Australia. So most of our major partners, whether it's a major Hollywood studio or it's a, it's a sporting code, they have their choice of partners. So how do you become the partner of choice? Yes, of course, money is important. But sometimes someone will choose a partner that isn't putting the most money on the table because there are other elements in the relationship where either they can build value for your business or that they know when push comes to shove, they can trust you. And if COVID and the pandemic has taught us nothing else and it taught us a lot of things, it has taught us that in those hard times, the strong partnerships prevail. So everyone's looking, flipping through the contracts, trying, finding the force majeure clause, you know, or the termination clause, But actually the good partners are the ones who could call up and say, hey, I've got a problem. Can you help me out? And I think, you know, a year from now, this is going to flow onto your your business in that way and how can I help you out at that point? And I found there are many, many examples in our business where that shone through and that's about the trust that was built at the time when you did that negotiation and you signed that contract. Of course, everyone hopes you sign the contract and you put it in the bottom drawer and you never need to look at it again. And that's the sign of a great partnership and a great contract that you never look at it again. But when you get the call that says, hey, I'm asking you to do something that you're not contractually obliged to do. And you go, yeah, yeah, how can I help? And vice versa. And you know, because when you need to make that call, which at some point you will, they're going to be there for you. Can you give us a little bit of an insight uh, around one of the big deals that you've done? Recognising that you probably can't tell us all <laughs> the, you know, all of the fine print. I'm keen to get a sense from you around how it can look so that if you're just going into this process, you're kind of prepared for what's Mm. ahead of you. Yeah. So I think, yes, details around any particular negotiations would be difficult, but there are some things that I think, obviously you can't always dictate how a negotiation is going to play out. 
But I think that um, some of the most important lessons are, first of all, like show up. Show up, be there, let your intentions be known, you know. So sometimes people trying trying to be a bit tricky or a bit cute in negotiations. Personally, I have not found that to be a successful technique, you know. Um, and and it's been tried on me and I've probably tried it at various points in my career. I, honestly, I think, you know, so show up, let your intentions be known. doesn't mean you show all of your cards. Obviously, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them and all of that. But, you know, you really got to show up. And I think constant communication. So, again, I've found that that is better than go in, have a meeting and then have absolute silence for days or weeks. Constant communication um, and again, being being honest without without being arrogant about that's not going to work for us. But take the time to explain why. So just sort of saying, well, that's unacceptable, or doing a walkout, or staging some grandiose, you know, the kabuki theatre of the negotiation. I mean, you can do that if you like, but actually, you're going to get further quicker by just being open about saying, well, that that doesn't work for us, and let me tell you why. Because that way, more often than not, what you'll find is person on the other side will say, oh, okay, don't assume that they know your business. I would say in, in sports rights negotiations, this is absolutely often the case. A sports body knows about putting on sporting events and clubs and players and rehab and sponsorship and these things. They don't know what the economic drivers of your business are and you shouldn't assume that they do. So if they don't understand that what they think is giving you value, like I'm going to give you a hundred more of this thing that I think you like. So if 10 is good, a hundred must be better. You need to explain, well, if 10 is good, a hundred isn't necessarily better because if you give me a hundred of those games, I've got to produce them all. I've got to pay the talent more. And I don't necessarily get a hundred times more ad revenue or a hundred times more subscribers. And that's what drives my business. So actually, you need to explain to them what the drivers are. And if something's unacceptable, it's actually a good you – know, I, I would suggest that you explain to them why it's unacceptable because that's the best way you're going to find to kind of thread that needle and get through it. So I would I would say that's that's really important, communication and explaining if something isn't going to work for you. You do need to – you need to know a walk away. You do need to have a walk away in your mind and that's agreed, I mean, ideally with the CEO on the board before you go in. I think there's some really powerful th- things you can do, which is, for example, if you can have the authority to make decisions in the room. It's very, very powerful. And my goodness, you can get some m- momentum behind a deal if you've got authority to sit in a room and make the decisions and, you know, know what you can compromise on, know what you need to stand firm on. Sometimes you've got momentum in a discussion. You've got to break that overnight or for two days. A, someone else can step into the breach and if they've got authority to negotiate and close a deal, they will. So, you know, knowing that momentum is your friend is very important. So be able to read the signs of that. And finally, or not finally, but another thing I would say, particularly to young women, is you will predictably find yourself in a situation where there's a man on the other side who thinks he can scare you, he can bully you, or he can flatter you into submission um, that's also a technique that, that, that uh, <laughs> I'm sure you see that one coming though. Oh, um, no, I'm not going to fall for that today. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think actually it's very, very powerful, particularly the, for those who might have very stereotypical ideas about what women are like and what women will do. In the face of someone who is ranting and raving and trying to bully or what have you, I would say, you know, a steely calm is incredibly disarming. 
So I would suggest that is also very effective. But yeah, I think meeting fire with fire, and 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 sadly, particularly if you're a woman, suddenly, oh, she's so emotional, she's hysterical. You know, there's all these things that get thrown at you when you when frankly you're behaving exactly the same as the that the male counterpart on the other side. So I do think that sort of a calmness, and frankly. For anyone who's got children or, you know, like, calmness can be very disarming and powerful. Have you ever met yelling and screaming with yelling and screaming? I just can't imagine you doing that. No, I I haven't. No, that's, that's, A, just not my style. No. But... It may have been a raised voice from time to time, you know. <laughs> I am not going to sit here and be hollowed out any longer and you you rise to the occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, only as much as to – so people need to understand and sometimes you are right and both parties legitimately are at the limit of what they can give. So the point at which you have traded what you can trade, you know, and you really have, you're at the limit of what you can do and sometimes that is – at the very same moment as the other party is. And so especially if you are tired, people can get a bit emotional and, and really what they're saying is, I just want you to give me what I want so we can close this deal and go to bed. Um, so, yeah, people, people, tempers can be frayed at that point in time and sometimes there's something about you know, raising, your, ra- raising your voice or just raising the temperature a little that signals very palpably that you're not, you're not foxing, you're at the point you really have given all you can give. So in that situation, how do you then turn, like you've given all you can give, everyone's exhausted, no one's got anywhere to move. How do you break that deadlock? Mm. Well, uh, this is where you take the momentum as far as you can and sometimes you do need to physically break, you know. And I think an acknowledgement of where you are and a willingness or a desire expressed to the other side to find a way through it, I think is also very powerful, which is we seem to have hit an impasse. Can we think about this differently? Is there something else? Is there some other way of moving the value? Because at the end of the day, that's when everyone feels like they've given as much value as they can and they've got just enough value in themselves so that they don't feel like there's room to move. So I think acknowledging that you've come to that point and indicating a desire and a willingness to think differently, to, to see whether you can find a way through it. Obviously, generally, you, you try and stick to your position at that point. You think, maybe, maybe I can get another concession from the other side. But I think at that point, you have to find a circuit breaker. And that's about being curious and being creative. Because sometimes asking a different question about something you think they want to do or something you've assumed they want or something that you've assumed is important to them that may not be. So check your own assumptions again about the other side and be curious as to, is there another way to deliver them value? Now, sometimes, that, sometimes that's about changing the term of the deal. Sometimes that's ch- about changing some of the exit mechanisms. Like there might be another way to break the deadlock that isn't talking about this. Because sometimes you get to the point where just saying the same things back to each other, like, you know, by the time, if a document's gone back and forth and every time it goes back and forth for the last three times, the same clauses are just being put in and out, in and out, in and out. You've got, to, you've, got to move, you've got to find a way to move forward. So I find that thinking differently are the things we haven't explored. Check your assumptions about what the other party values or wants or needs and then thinking don't keep negotiating the same point. They're probably stuck. 
find some other ways to uh, to sort of as a circuit breaker. I imagine you've been the lead negotiator now for quite a reasonable period of your career, but there would have been times when you were the underling, like you're going in as the backup. Mm. Can you describe a little bit what those two different roles look like? Mm, mm. I think because, you know, for my the start of my career, I was I was a lawyer by trade and I was the general counsel of, of an organisation and I have been on the tools for many years. Uh, so part of this was also just that's the expectation and indeed your role um, as, a, as a sort of as the in-house lawyer. Uh, when you are the backup, when you are not the lead negotiator, you need to be across everything. You need to be the person where if they say, what's that thing? Where's that going? What does that mean? Isn't there a clause that says this? Don't we need that? You ha- you just have to be there because the person who's the lead negotiator is thinking about the strategy. They're thinking about delivery. You know, they're thinking about how they're going to pitch it to the, the CEO or the board or wherever it might be. You just have to be the most prepared person in the room. And you also need to have forged very strong partnerships and relationships with all of your internal stakeholders. You need to know that you can pick up the phone to the person in marketing or the person in tech and ops or the person in finance and ask them a question or ask them for some information and they understand what you're doing, they understand it's important they will prioritise it and they'll give, they'll, they'll give you the answer. So you need to have those because at the end of the day, you, you, are, you are there to support that lead negotiator. Um, you're also there to make sure that you capture everything that's going on because what you also find sometimes at the end of a long day of negotiating, it'll be, but didn't they say this or didn't they do that or didn't they say they'd be willing to consider that? And the person who's doing all the talking can't be capturing all the notes. So you need to be there in that capacity. So it's very much that supporting role. I mean, then as you sort of you, you go through it, through the various, um, you know, the, the learning and the, the just the, the hard yards and the runs on the board, and you you then lead a negotiation. I think that's the expectation of the people around you that a you're a team, you absolutely are a team, and making sure that everyone understands what their roles are in the team, and also that that support role is no less important and no less critical than the person who's doing the lead negotiation. If you don't have all the pieces. You know, you, you you're going to you're not going to be prepared, and you're not going to be able to make those decisions in the room or on the run because you haven't got done your homework, you haven't got the information that you need, or you haven't got the latest draft or the latest turn or whatever it might be. So that they're, they're two really quite different roles. And in in the as a lead negotiator, you need to be at the end of most days, you'll be talking to the CEO or doing a, a paper for the board about where things are at you know, all liaising with the CFO about where the value has shifted or where the costs have moved and making sure that that is, you know, consistent with the financial needs or financial envelope or the strategic imperative for the, for the business. So is it possible then, given your extraordinary experiences in these high-powered environments, that you've kind of developed those skills in a way that's relevant in your everyday life? management of your job. So someone comes in and asks you for a pay rise or someone comes in and wants a better office or... Yes to both. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask the other person. I don't care about that. I've got stuff to do. No, but you know what I mean? Like those finely honed skills around understanding what somebody else wants. So for example, let's use the corner office as an example. If you break down, well, hang on, what are you, what do you need here? Do you need uh, more recognition so you can 
tell your next door neighbour that you've got a really great view out over the city? Or is it actually the space? I can see enormous application over the workplace if you've got that kind of sensibility. Absolutely. I think whether you're the one asking for a pay rise or being asked for a pay rise or a promotion or a corner office or a new opportunity, understanding what motivates that person, which is effectively what does that person value, um, is important because it may be that there's something that someone really values that actually is yours to give. I don't need to go and get more money from the CFO because actually I, the thing that they really value, may, they might come in looking for a pay rise, but actually when you, if you really understand what they value, there might be another way to keep them really engaged and satisfied and happy. So I think understanding what the other person values, understanding what motivates the other person, just like in a negotiation, you use those skills. Um, and I also think that openness, operating with integrity, all these things are still still need to be applied because I think if they're the values you expect from your team, you also need to demonstrate them yourself. Is there a way that I can uncover what they value? Sometimes you can just ask them. Uh, and in fact, an example given the other day, uh, there was a visiting Stanford professor who does a lot of sports rights negotiations for like the IOC and all sorts of people and the NFL and, you know, the biggest billion dollar deals in the world. And he said some... Uh, a technique is someone who had a number of different suitors for different parts of the rights. And they went to each of them and said, tell me the top three things that you want out of this deal or the top three things you need out of this deal. And he thought they'd all be give the same three things. In fact, they gave they each gave three very different things, which meant he could then fashion a deal that had all that had all of these people at the table getting different things. So sometimes just actually just being really just asking what people want or what they value can work. Sometimes people feel like they oughtn't to tell you that because you'll take advantage of them, in which case you, need, you do need to find other ways. And sometimes you need to kind of go around through the, the back entrance or the tradesman's entrance to kind of get that answer because going through the front door isn't going to work. And you can do that by testing different things, which is, you know, if I gave you more of this but I shortened the term or I paid you more up front but got something different two years from now. So you sort of test some different scenarios to find out what they value because they don't want to necessarily tell you that they really need $50 million now because of what's happening in their business. Uh, also, that might be extremely confidential. They really don't want you to know or that actually they need some more money. They know they've got a problem in FY24, so they need some more money there. You find some other ways to test the things that they value by, ask, by, by trying different scenarios or trying different ways of approaching whatever the issue is that you've got a deadlock on. And that will often uncover the things that they sort of really value. Are you good at hard conversations as a result? That is a muscle that I have had to work on because, again, in my earlier career, because I was, I was, I was in a legal role and I did, you know, I then had a legal team reporting to me. Uh, I also had a very stable, great legal team and we didn't have a lot of people coming and going because we just had this terrific team and we didn't have a, we, we just, people stayed. It was terrific. So really learning, again, probably started later in my career as a leader and as a manager to manage a team and have those hard conversations in a way that was constructive for the person and for the team. And that's something, talk about coaching, that is something that I have had to learn. I've had to learn and then I've had to make sure that, that I, I work that muscle and I get better at it and it gets stronger and better and more effective and more efficient. Uh, but you realise these things as you, as you, again, as you become more senior, there's some things that are easy for me, that are instinctive for me, 
it's easy for me to have a hard conversation in a negotiation, but it, but it was harder for me to have it with a team member or indeed for, for me with a CEO. I was I was never very good at people often say, you know, when you when one gets to a certain age, Helen, <laughs> and people say, what would you tell your 25-year-old self? The thing I would say is don't be afraid to ask for something. Don't be afraid to say what motivates you and ask for something because now I realise as a manager, I can't guess what everyone wants. There are too many people and I don't know them all well enough. I mean, some of them I obviously do, my more senior leaders, but that is the one thing I would say is just, I, I remember a few things in my career where I agonised over, I mean, for example, I agonised over telling the CEO that I wanted to move into a commercial role and move sort of on from being the general counsel. And I, in my mind, of course, I thought, oh, he's going to think that I don't want to do my job anymore. I won't, or I won't be trying as hard or all these things. And I delayed, honestly, for probably two years. And of course, the moment I actually had the conversation, he said, awesome idea. How can I help? Yeah, I, I was like, wow, I should have had this conversation two years I ago. <laughs> I know. I, I, I completely agree. And we have talked about it in this podcast. Like, as soon as you put it out there, um, as a manager, you, you're grateful. You go, oh, she wants to do this. Well, I'll just put that in the back of my mind. And if the job comes up, I'll just give it to her. Yes. It's so logical yes. to the manager. Yes. To the person who's trying to be a good employee and is grateful for the job they've got mm -hmm. and doesn't want to get out of their lane, it's quite a challenge. But I say this all the time. If no matter, and I ask my team all the time, tell us what you want. Mm. You know, we'll try and deliver it. You will be, you may very well be surprised at the answer, which is, oh my goodness, that's great. Because I was just thinking I need someone in that role or, oh, actually you don't, someone's about to go on mat leave in another part of the business. And that's an amazing opportunity for you or whatever it might be. You know, you just don't know. And again, as long as it's presented not in an arrogant or entitled way, which can be a mistake, a rookie error for some, <laughs> as long as it's not presented that way, you will find almost 100% of the time your manager, A, will be grateful, thank you, that's great to know, and you will find that it leads to something. And I think the other thing is if you show that you're somebody that people will, can count on, they will. You will be given all sorts of opportunities when you, sh when you are the one who shows up and is the person that can be counted on. And so when you go and say, hey, I, I'd really like to try this, it might be in a different department, it might be a different, different part of the business, most managers won't think to themselves, you're excellent and I refuse to let you go anywhere else because I'm going to keep you to myself forever. Most of them, especially good managers, will say, that's a great idea, actually, because you're going to go over there and maybe you'll come back and maybe you'll go over there and then you'll be the person I'm dealing with over there and great because you're awesome. So, again, I think just saying what motivates you and what you're interested in um, is, is great as long as it's not, you know, presented in a way which is, well, I'm entitled to this or in an arrogant way. The only time, well, I have had a couple of times where I've heard absolutely outlandish ambitions and gone, mm, no, that might not work. <laughs> um, uh, it usually wasn't a female and it usually wasn't um, anyone I was working directly with. But, but in the circumstance where you do think that skill set is slightly beyond the person, then you just say, oh, I, well, you need, you, ideally you'd start in this role in order to build to that role. Mm. And so you can actually build a pathway and it's a pretty simple thing to do as a manager. Yeah, and I think if you're saying to someone, hey, you know what, you're not there yet, 
but let me help you work out how to get there. You know, and that might be something internal. Actually, you know what would be great for you? You should go over there and do that role for a year because that will teach you about certain things. And then I suggest doing this. So rather than just a no, you're not cut out for it or no, you're not good enough. It's like you're not there yet, but let's think about how we can get you there, you know. And again, most people will give you another person an opportunity to grow and learn and mature. Sometimes it's just about maturity uh, or just they just need a bit more experience. You know, they've got all the, all the things they need, but they just really haven't had enough experience so that their judgment in certain areas of management and leadership is it just needs to be honed and, and matured and evolved a little. So where are you at then? You're Chief Commercial and Content at Foxtel. You've successfully moved from the legal side to the commercial and now to the content side. Do you have, like, is there like, I've got to go and talk to the CEO because now I want to do something else? Or has your worldview shifted? I joined um, Foxtel almost five years ago. It was April 2018 I joined. And since then, my role has expanded quite a lot in that sort of four and a half, almost five years. So I've been given more opportunities and more responsibility, and I have been really stretched and and pushed and shoved, and the learning curve has been immense. And uh, so I've taken on areas of the business that I was, you know, I, I didn't, I hadn't had experience in. I mean, it's a bit like when I I joined as the little little general counsel of uh, ACB magazines way back in the 90s. I'd never done defamation law. And actually defamation law was a, a, a good part of, of the role. I'm a Rebel to Wilson. Me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did you just join as general counsel? Well, I'd, been, I'd come from a law firm. I had been a okay, lawyer. Okay, right. I, I, I was like, well, I some qualifications. I CV. No, no, she just starts as general no, counsel. No, okay. I'd, I'd been at a law firm and I'd been working in intellectual property and, and general commercial law, but I hadn't done defamation and lit- litigation wasn't wasn't my strong suit. But again, you know, when you hire someone, you've, you look, you're looking for the unicorn and sometimes like, well, they've got most things and I'll just have to, they'll have to learn, they'll have to learn that bit. So the point really is I sort of, I came to Foxtel, I'd obviously, I'd been on the board of Stan, so I understood subscription businesses and I understood advertising and I understood commercial deals and sport and sports rights and mergers and acquisitions and all those things. But one of the relationships I had responsibility for when I joined was Telstra. And Telstra is, A, it's a shareholder of the business, but they are a very large part of our sales and subscribers, and it's it's a telco. And I hadn't had experience in telcos and telecommunications companies, so I, I thankfully had wonderful people in my team who were black belts in telco. And so I learned a lot. I learned how they wired up. I earned what they valued. I learned, I learned about, you know, how to get things done in what is a – very big beast, which is Telstra, and how they're organised and how to get the best out of that partner. So it was a steep learning curve and we've launched all these businesses since. So I've, I've had lots of things to learn and the competitive environment has changed so markedly that there are also elements of you're doing the same role, but it's actually quite different because the competitive landscape around you has changed so much. I love my role. It's a really exciting time to be part of the business. So the moment that's my, my prize is is what I'm doing now because whilst there are certainly days where you're exhausted and you know you, you sort of think yeah, you really need a break, um, there are a lot of days where I think this is the greatest job in Australia. Tell me, has being a female leader ever been a clear disadvantage for you? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think as far as promotion and recognition, I would say not. But I think that the harder thing sometimes when you're coming up through the ranks, and I think this is this is different now. There's still obviously lots to do. But but when I joined, you know, went, moved into media from being in a law firm, although even at the law firm there was very few female partners at the law at, at all law firms, not just the one I was at. Now that has changed a lot now, but that was that was the mid '90s people. But you know there weren't many women in leadership. There, I mean, the magazine company, women were running the business, but I think nearly every direct report to the CEO was a man. Uh, and we know when we're coming up through the ranks that you're, you take your cues for both the hard and the soft stuff. You take them from the people around you. And I think when you're a young woman coming up through the ranks, it's nice to see women in the ranks of the people that you're taking those cues from. And I think that, you know, you often hear, well, you can't be what you can't see. I would say, well, actually, sometimes you must be what you haven't seen or what you can't see. You just got to be. So I think that not having many women around, you know, in certain areas of the business or at certain levels of seniority is hard in in softer ways, which is you might find that, you know, if you're the only woman, maybe you don't get invited out to drinks because maybe they assume that you don't have the time because you're going home to the kids or to the husband or whatever or they think you're going to go home and knit. I don't know what they think. But, you know, so you don't get invited to, oh, let's go for a drink or to the long boozy lunches or to the box at the footy that someone's got tickets to or whatever it might be because either they assume that you wouldn't enjoy it or you don't want to come or they don't really know how you wired up. And as we know, they're the times that relationships get forged, information gets shared, both, you know, it formal, formally and informally, sometimes decisions get made, you know, alliances get struck in those social moments. So I think that's sometimes the thing that women miss out on and really what you have to do is just kind of make your own luck, which is, okay, well, organise something and invite them. Because actually I'm, I, I would wager that more times than not, if you invite them, they'll all enjoy it. So you sort of have to there's not a lot of points sort of stamping your feet and going, why don't you invite me? Please invite me. You have to kind of find a way through those relationships and find other ways to have those informal catch-ups and that casual social time. Any times where it's been a distinct advantage? That's always hard, I think, to... Yeah. To, um, well, the only that I think sometimes, certainly um, in, in the sort of earlier days, and I guess still now, I suppose, really, in reality. Sometimes being the only woman in the room can be an advantage mm. because people don't know what to expect. Honestly, if, they're, if, if, if there are men, often they don't know what to expect. They can't read you as well as they probably can read other men in the room or they don't think they can or they think they can read men better than you. Maybe they can't. So I think there's an element of that sometimes and sometimes that different voice will be listened to because it is different. Well, if you've got the checkbook. Well, that always helps. <laughs> <laughs> but you're in the room, you're there, you're there for a reason, mm. so you're a bit hard to ignore. Mm, mm, mm. We, we have a thing at Foxtel called Fox Squad and it's, uh, it's really about women supporting women. Uh, we have great speakers. We have really practical work that we do and um, it's, it's really inspiring and invigorating and exciting, some of the things we talk about. And the things that we're able to achieve, but 
really simple things, which is let's leave today with some really tangible things. And one the other week just just made me you made me think of them was take the middle seat. Next time you walk into a room, take the middle seat around the table. And it was really interesting. Someone just gave this as an example of something that we should all try to practice, mm. right? Because and this has uh, people from really junior ranks to the most senior women in the company. And when it was said, so many people looked at each other and went, oh, my God, and realised that when they walked into a room, they either didn't take a seat at the table, they took a seat in kind of back, mm. or they sat on the edge. They didn't take the middle seat. And it was such a revelation because it was completely subconscious. And so we've all been practising, take the middle seat. And, in fact, we've been taking the middle seat and saving the seat next to you for the woman that you know is coming to the meeting but she's not there yet. So when she comes in, oh, I've saved a seat for you right here. And it's quite powerful. So I love, I love these little really simple things that actually send a subtle message that just says, I'm here, I belong. Amanda Lang, fantastic to talk to you. That was a great, a great chat. And um, I love that we're finishing on Take the Middle Seat. Mm, indeed. Well, thanks for having me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 